Let's pray. Lord, again, we just stand amazed at you. You're so much greater than we can comprehend. Your uh, riches are unsearchable, incomprehensible. And we just recognize that uh, we're dependent on you to reveal yourself. We're dependent on your spirit to bring us revelation. Lord, thank you that you've given us your word. You've given us a revelation, but we just say, Holy Spirit, would you make that real to us? Uh, Would you help us to see uh, and be able to respond to your truth? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We're back to relational theology number 14. And as you see on the uh, notes at the top, We're going to get into the question, is everything that happens God's will? Which is a a hairy one. Uh, But let me just say this. We spent quite a bit of time building a foundation of what does the Bible say? And from that, we're then using that as the, the basis to be able to look at or identify or, or evaluate other positions. Are they biblical? And so the, the key is, what does the Bible say? Uh, as we progress, we're getting into what I consider secondary doctrines. It doesn't mean that they're unimportant. It means that we can disagree. Uh, someone who doesn't agree on some of these things can still be part of the kingdom. It comes down to... Do we, where's Jesus? It's okay, come on in. So, uh, one of the things I want to say is that as we look at different questions and the, the people who have uh, really been behind those in history, We're looking at the beliefs, not just the person. So we can disagree without attacking someone. And so that's what I want to say, that we can can agree to disagree and still be friends. Uh, We can agree with people. I believe that people who have a different approach, as long as they're followers of Jesus, are allies in the kingdom. And we don't have to agree on everything. There's no litmus test of doctrine other than Jesus. And that's the important part. Though most of us have had experiences with people, as soon as we meet them, they want to put us in a camp or a box and what do you believe about this and what do you believe about that? Uh, But we're not going to, hopefully not not get that dogmatic. A friend of mine is a uh, manager of a bank in Colorado and uh, I realized that they train tellers to identify counterfeit money. And you know how they do that? They just deal with money, money, for weeks and weeks at a time until they get so used to it, then they slip in something that's not right. And so the fact is that they don't try and tell them all the things to look for to make sure something's right. They just say, this is, this is the real, handle it, deal with it, and for weeks. And then they slip something in and Often they don't know why it's wrong. They just know it is. Because they're so used to what is right. Someone told me that 
diamond graders, you know, the guys who determine, you know, mm -hmm. the, the clarity and flaws and everything and the, that they start, the guys who do that, start every day looking at a perfect diamond. Mm -hmm. And they spend time looking at it and then they judge diamonds compared to that. But every about fifth or sixth diamond, they have to stop what they're doing and go back and examine the perfect again. Otherwise, what happens is they start comparing diamonds to diamonds yeah. instead of to the, the perfect. So, as we started, we want to say it again. It's the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. That's the perfect. As far as, as understanding God's revelation of himself. Uh, I don't think... I have to qualify what I just said there because there is a... Uh, a scripture in Corinthians that says when the perfect comes, the imperfect will pass away. And there's not referring to the Bible, it's actually referring to Jesus as the perfect. And so, uh, you still with me? Yeah. So, just a review. We talked about creation, that God made us for relationship and rulership. And then there was this change, the fall. Uh, Adam and Eve sinned and lost both relationship and rulership. And so, not only did they not have a relationship with God, but they no longer had rulership of the planet. That was given over to Satan. He is now considered the ruler of this world. We've talked about. Uh, and then we see God's restoration of his original plan with a series of progressive covenants as he took people and he, and he began to teach them again who he was and how that they could have a relationship with him all leading to the new covenant, which was the whole focus. It wasn't an add-on, it was the whole focus. Everything points to that. That's where relationship for, with God was restored for everyone. Uh, but with that came the whole kingdom of God. Jesus broke in a new rulership. Satan's the, the ruler of this world, but Jesus comes with a kingdom, a new rulership, a new authority, and that's been growing and increasing but the problem has been that that made those two kingdoms in conflict. The kingdom of this world, whose ruler is the devil, and the kingdom of God, whose king is Jesus, end up in conflict. And so we've seen that. Uh, and then, as I pointed out last week, that was the, the consensus for the church for about 400 years. It actually continue much longer than that, but about 400 years, Augustine brought in a different concept, a blueprint worldview uh, that was based on some of Plato's philosophies. And that kind of percolated an, an impact, but, but something happened and the, the church got away from the Bible altogether and got into this whole weird uh, authority of the church and different things. And we talked about the breaking away from that in the Renaissance and the Reformation. So, back to the question. Is everything that happens God's will? Now, it's almost, if we look at everything we talked about, why would we even voice that question? Where did that even come from? Because if you look at everything we've seen, it seems like God made man with this ability to interact. We saw last week 26 times where it said that God either grieved or relented or, or changed his mind. 
So there seems to be something of interaction. We see that Satan is now the ruler of this world and that Jesus is opposing that and restoring his original plan. So why would we say that everything that happens is God's will? Where did that come from? It started with Augustine, but it didn't actually become popular until a guy named John Calvin, about 1500. So the church went 1500 years without that being a major issue. <coughs> so where did it come from? It came from that blueprint worldview that, that started with, with uh, Augustine. So we're gonna take a look at John Calvin. Uh, my goal in this is not to try and convince you not to be a Calvinist if you're a Calvinist. Okay, my goal is to help you understand where that came from and how to take a look at it, okay? There are people who believe differently, uh, and that's quite all right. I'm right. <laughs> I just want to see if you're awake. So John Calvin uh, was born in 1509, Died in 1564, just to put that in understanding. The Reformation is said to have started in 1517 with Luther's thesis that he put on the Wittenberg, the door of Wittenberg Church. Uh, and so he is born right in the beginning of the, uh, the time of the Reformation. But you need to understand that the Renaissance, Renaissance had already been going on for 200 years. The Renaissance was a return, a breaking away from the authority of the church and a returning to Greek philosophy. And that had already been happening. And so that was uh, impacting much of Europe by that time. This rebirth of philosophy was basically what was happening. But it wasn't that they broke away from the Catholic Church and the Catholic Church ceased to exist. It still had incredible power. So this Reformation is being birthed into this period that is influenced or controlled by religion and philosophy. And then when you look at Calvin, he was born in France, but he was educated in Paris. He studied law, philosophy. He was a, a studier of both Plato and Aristotle. And uh, his dad was a, a lawyer and wanted him to be a lawyer, so he went and studied law. And uh, he did much, but uh, while he was there, uh, just... As an aside, Aristotle's uh, beliefs led to a naturalistic worldview. Aristotle was the one who, as I said uh, last week, Plato had this kind of spiritual and natural belief, these forms. Aristotle kind of rejected Plato's spiritual one and said, all that's real is natural. You can only know what, what your five senses tell you. That's the, all that's real. That philosophy led to our scientific worldview, okay, which is that it's called Aristotelian empiricism. I just wanted to impress you with my, that's the only big word I know. But, but basically that just means it's a, a natural scientific worldview that came from Aristotle's philosophy. And so what, what that brought with it was a, an, almost an anti-supernaturalism. Only what's natural is real. Now that began to permeate all of Europe. And so when Calvin was studying law, obviously what he was studying was philosophy. 
But while he was a law student, he decided he would join with the Reformation. Now prior to that, as a young person, he was a Catholic. They called them Papists. They followed the Pope. Yeah. He was a Catholic. His family was. He then kind of turned from that and followed a what was believed to be a cultic belief, Manichaeism. Manichaeism. Man, I forget how you say the guy's name. But he was only there for a while and then he broke away from that and he became a follower of the evangelical beliefs of the Reformation. And so that happened when he was a uh, student. Uh, and he then wrote a, a book called The Institutes of Christian Religion in 1536. Now for those of you who are quick in math, he was 27 years old when he did that. And he did, he had already gone through his papist, his cultic beliefs, and into Reformation when he wrote this, this book. Okay, so you still with me? Not that that's important. He's pretty smart. Mm. Yes. He, he had a huge impact. But understand that he's making a defense of the Reformation to what he called the Papists, the, the Catholics, and the philosophers. Huh. And so if you read his Institutes, the first 81 pages is actually addressed to the King of France that he would listen to his argument while against all these Catholic papist people who were attacking him, attacking the Reformation. They weren't attacking him personally. They were attacking the Reformation. Now, he actually, they did attack him personally because he was part of that in France and he had to leave France and was headed to Strasbourg, Austria, and on the way he ended up going through uh, Geneva, Switzerland because he couldn't go directly to Strasbourg and end up staying there and that's where a lot of his life was spent. He left there at one point, but the bottom line is that he was writing into this context. He was writing against the Catholic Church and trying to deal with this idea of philosophy. Dealing with these philosophers. He addresses things to the Stoics and the Epicureans and a whole bunch of different philosophical groups that were evident at that time. Uh, why is that important? Because as a result, he used philosophy as the base for his argument. He didn't start with the Bible, he started with philosophy. And again, you don't need to know all this, but the, uh, his Institutes was actually, there's four parts, four books, it's called in the Institutes, it was, uh, new editions came out over a number of years, but those four books, it was designed after the Apostles' Creed. We believe God created heaven and earth, so the first part is about God. We believe in Christ, his, his son. So the second part is about Jesus and salvation through him, the Holy Spirit, and then the, the church. And so it follows his institutes, the outline of the institutes is the Apostles' Creed. Uh, you really don't care about that. I could tell. <laughs> you guys back there in the chair, don't fall asleep. <laughs> what was his motivation? If he's attacking or defending his position to all of these different groups, why was he doing that? 
because it was a, a real attack. The, uh, the Catholic Church, the Papists, were attacking this whole Reformation. The Reformation's only been going on for, you know, what, whatever it is now, just the 20 years, 10 years. That's persecution. And so he's yeah. defending the position of the Reformation. Yep. Um, so why then was he also defending his position against the philosophical groups? Because it's hard to understand, but at that time, the king or the, the ruler of each country determined what was allowable to be, to be taught or to be, to be worshipped. This is just following the, uh, some of the Inquisition, but these kings still had incredible authority. So he's basically arguing before the king of France by writing this stuff that don't let these guys persecute us because we're not that weird. Okay. This actually makes sense. Thank you. Uh, and we're going to see later on how that applied even in, in uh, Holland uh, with what became Calvin's five points. Calvin didn't write five points. That didn't happen until a long time after his death, about 60 years after his death. Uh, so what we often call the five points of Calvinism, uh, tulip, didn't happen until much later. Uh, and we'll get into that if we need to briefly. But let me read you a quote from, uh, from Calvin's Institutes. In, in his introduction, he says, Hence it is the duty of those who have received from God more light than others to assist the simple in this matter, and, as it were, lend them their hand to guide and assist them in finding the sum of what God has been pleased to teach us in his word. Now this cannot be done better in writing than by treating in succession of the principal matters which are comprised of Christian philosophy. He's saying, he's been given this gift and therefore he wants to help others in understanding the sum of what God has revealed. And the best way to do that is a progression, a succession of Christian philosophy. So what I want you to understand is that his foundational approach was philosophical. Now that's important because some people revere Calvin to such a point that if you disagree with Calvin, it's like you disagree with God. You know, you disagree with the, the word of God. He was a man who made a defense in, in the situation that he, he existed. But we need to understand it was primarily philosophical based. Now, why is that important? Because I'm going to tell you right now. So that all the teachings of Calvin are primarily built on the doctrine of divine providence. Later called the sovereignty of God. Calvin didn't call it that. Again, his followers did later. He called it divine providence. And most of his positions about man and about everything else rest on that. That's why someone like A.W. Pink, who was a Calvinist much later, wrote that the doctrine of the sovereignty of God is the sun around which the universe of all of the doctrines revolves. And so he's saying, this is the main one. And if you understand Calvin's uh, theological position, what he's saying is actually true for Calvin. I don't think it's true for the Bible, but it's true for Calvin. And so you just need to understand that. So 
What is the divine providence? In book one, chapter 16, uh, he writes this. We know that God created the world. He's just gone through a whole long uh, number of chapters on creation. And uh, it says, we know that God owns all he created. We also know that God governs everything he owns. Divine providence, then, is God's government of all of creation. And so what Calvin says is that everything that happens is the will of God. And then if you look with me at Psalm 115 and verse 3, it says, But our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. And so that's Calvin's biblical reference. God's in heaven, does whatever he pleases. Therefore, everything that happens is the will of God because God's governing what he owns and he owns what he created. So he ties government back to creation and uh, says that everything that God does, God governs. And for many, if you don't believe this exactly how it's written, then you're accused of not believing in the sovereignty of God. I've had people ask me directly, do you believe in the sovereignty of God? And my response is yes, but not how Calvin defined it. See, Calvin defined sovereignty as within history. And I would define sovereignty as that God is bigger than history. Now, what do I mean by that? By that I mean, could God have chosen to do something that would give man some sort of choice? So let me ask you, here's the the question for you tonight. Can you see what's wrong with Calvin's statement? Statement is in your notes there, book one, chapter 16. We know that God created the world. We know that God owns all he created. We know that God governs everything he owns. Can you see what's wrong with that statement from a biblical perspective? He governs everything he owns. Say again? That he governs everything he owns. Is that the... Due to... Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, if Satan is the ruler of this world, then also if God has entrusted the world that he created to man, gave him dominion, Mm -hmm. then he doesn't actually own it. He's given it away. Mm -hmm. And so does he then govern this world and all in it, if he's delegated that away and it's become now Satan's rulership. Now, Calvin defined that government as within history. Everything that happens, I actually think, you could see it a different way, in that God chose, he is sovereign, but he chose to give man some 
choice for a time. Does that limit God's sovereignty in any way? Absolutely not. Could God not do that? Look at Psalm 115. We just read, but God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. In the same Psalm, in verse 16, says the heavens, even the heavens are the Lord's, but the earth is given to the children of men. The very same Psalm says something different than what Calvin was referring to. So if God chooses to give man some choice in a time, does that mean that he can't intervene? Does that mean he can't interact? See, what, what often happens in theology is you, you're presented with these two extremes. If you believe in the sovereignty of God, you don't believe in the free will of man. If you believe in the free will of man, you don't believe in the sovereignty of God. But why can't you believe in both if they're both in the Bible? It just means that we have to maybe look outside the box a little bit. Maybe God's sovereignty is expressed in how he made man, not in everything that happens. I think that is one of the toughest questions right there. Can he intervene? Especially when it comes to crimes against children and that sort of thing. Mm. You know, that, that is one of the hardest things, I think, because he's a father and he loves, you know, his people, and especially kids, and why doesn't he intervene and knock the lights out of perpetrators of horrible yeah. crimes? Absolutely. Yeah. Which is a, a big question. Yeah. Why not? So if we were to, to examine this from a biblical perspective, we'd have to say, okay, in the Bible, why does it show that he intervenes in? And what, what are the ingredients that cause him to intervene? And those are the things that you're going to have to look at. Because <laughs> the, the, the other perspective of that is, but Mary, your question. Yeah. If you really look at that and say, well, okay, let's, let's start to create a scenario that does that. You sort of get really when you really when I think about that, I think, well, okay, well, let's think. How would you do that? You start getting very twisted. Yeah, it's very hard to do it because you. Um, the moment I get up in the morning, you stop me there um, because I was going to be disrespectful. Um, where, where do you stop me? In my, do you only pick out the the certain ones we don't like? Yeah. Or do you pick out? All the ones that are unhealthy, all the ones that are against God's holiness, um, you start to raise all these questions that start to get. You know, no, um, that, that's the conclusion I came to, and I, I came across that one. Somebody said, "Well, you, know, you get across the street, you're going to get hit by a bus. What does God just pull you up and hold you there? Get away, God! I, I want to cross the street." Um, you know, it, it really raises huge scenarios that we. I don't think we ever take the question into it um, to think it through what, what it would mean to really for God to really do that how, how would we um, how would we create the picture of how we would do it I, I can't create it actually when I think about it which is a, which is a good feel for thought but more than feel for thought it's okay is there anything in the Bible that would indicate to us when does God intervene 
Now, the Bible seems to, to show us occasions where God does intervene. He intervenes in some major things. Uh, are you thinking something biblical where, where that was the case? I'm, I'm trying to think of biblical examples where we see God intervening. Uh, obviously, God's bringing Israelites out of Egypt. We see the plagues. We see God's intervention. Uh, was it because of an injustice or was it because of a greater yeah. purpose that God had, which was establishing these progressive covenants with the people so that he can reveal who he is and how he functions. Uh, so does God intervene to fulfill his ultimate purposes for mankind? And then does he intervene as a result of our interaction with him? Okay, here's the question for you. You're going to come back to that. Here's the question. What are the consequences or the results of divine providence? If you accept Calvin's position that everything that happens is the will of God, what, what's the consequences or, or the results of that? Think about that for a moment. I don't have free will. Okay. No Huh? No, no. No hope? So, expand. What do you mean? Well, it's just you have this resignation set all over you. Because whatever happens is God's will. Um, bring it on. So almost a fatalism. Mm -hmm. I don't know that it can be relational. Because it's all one way. Yeah, that, it gets more complicated, but I'm going to write that down. Uh, no, I mean, it, it, it seems very simple. I mean, to, to most of us, that's pretty obvious. Calvin then just created this whole concept that there's, there's good that we don't see. And so that's basically what, what happened, is that there is no evil from the standpoint that everything evil that happens is actually God working for some other good that we don't see. And he called it secret providence. God has a secret will. He's got a revealed will and a secret will. And we just don't know the secret will, so we just have to somehow accept by faith that those are good. But problem is, it, it really does away with the very concept of evil. <coughs> Because no matter what happens, it's got to be good. So it causes some incredible uh, gymnastics, semantics to try and convince people that this is good. Uh, and that also introduces different levels of good. Because in order to do the greater good, if, if this thing here is less good than the greater good, then that ends up being a negative thing. Experiencing the negative. Yeah. <clears throat> What's the consequence of what Jack said? Fatalism. 
think about that for a moment. Why pray or why lead someone to the Lord? Yeah. Why pray? Why evangelize? That old saying, just eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. <laughs> <laughs> Why try and be good if there's no good? If everything that happens is determined by the will of God, anything I do is God's will anyway, so why should I not try and hit the kid who's crossing the road in front of me? Why should I not have an affair with that secretary in my office? Don't you care? It's all determined. I mean, if I do it, it's because because God God willed it. So how can it be bad if God willed it? So there's no sin. Huh? Let's leave life to the fullest. Yeah. And so you so it's yeah. So the bottom line is that we end up blaming God for everything. Yeah, which is true. We, we want to tell God, we want God to be like us. Mm. So, so if you believe that, what happens to the uh, scriptures that seem to indicate that God changed? <clears throat> Calvin used, he didn't coin this phrase, it came in much later, but he used the concept of anthropomorphism. It basically, where th that didn't really happen. We just can't understand it. So the writers of the Bible use those illustrations. But now we're imposing a philosophical idea on how we read the Bible. And even what the Bible says. So here's the question. If this wasn't in the church virtually for 1,500 years and everything changed and it seems so obvious as we mentioned those things we've just talked about that they're contrary to what most of us have read in the Bible, how did this become so popular? How could that have happened? So much so that these beliefs affected almost all of society. When we have a major storm or catastrophe or a hurricane in the U.S., insurance companies call it an act of God. God did it. So accidents are negative things. How did it happen? Let me give you a real brief history. I wasn't going to do this, but I want to tell you. Uh, about 50 years after, 40 years after... Uh, Calvin died. There was a guy up in Holland who the, the Reformation is growing. It's impacting much of the world. A guy named uh, Jacobus Arminius basically made some points. He said, look, I'm not sure that I agree with this 
kind of an idea. Here's another way to look at these things. And he, and he made four points. Basically, he said that people, God doesn't determine before you're born whether you're going to be saved or not. You're saved as you respond in faith to the message of the gospel. And so, had these things, and it, and it began to become very popular in, in Holland, which included, I mean, Holland at the time included Belgium and, and the Netherlands and Belgium and northern France, and I mean, it was a big area. And so, he wrote these things, and then he, he died the next year. And 43 pastors wrote a letter to the prince, who was the ruler, saying, we see things different and we want your approval because if, if we don't have your approval, then we get persecuted, you know, which is exactly what Calvin had done. And so they, they did these. And so after a number of years, the prince called a synod, a bunch of leaders brought together, called the Synod of Dort. And it was a town in Holland, and they came, and uh, because this stuff from Arminius had impacted already, had grown into Germany and Switzerland, there were delegate, delegates from those places from France, so it was called an international synod. I always like those terms, because if you get people from one other nation, it's international. <laughs> international sounds like it's people from everywhere. Mm-hmm. But, uh, mm-hmm. but there were these guys there, and they came together, and these... Uh, this letter was presented. Now, if you study this Synod of, of Dort, you realize that these 43 pastors who presented these arguments, none of them were allowed to be delegates. The only delegates in the Synod were Calvinists. That sounds a bit biased. But what happened is that in the southern part of Holland, there was this, this was, was gathering a, a momentum, but France was still very much controlled by the Catholic Church, very much papist, and the prince or the ruler of Holland at the time was afraid that if they actually agreed with these principles of Arminius, that the southern part would actually, for some reason, he thought they would become papists rather than followers of the Reformation, Calvin. Don't know where he got that. But he stacked the synod in advance to get the outcome he wanted. So it became the approved position of the Dutch Reformed Church was Calvinism. And it was really because he didn't want to lose control of that. He thought he would lose control of the southern part of his country. You look at sometimes when you get into history, you realize that it's not as clear cut. It's not as simple as history books make it. It's often quite complicated, and there's other factors and different things going along. And but Calvinism became the official position of the Dutch Reformed Church. That was in about uh, the the. Synod started in 1618, and, and it was about right around there. It went for a while. It took them a while to, to gather. But by 1630, 
things had changed and the Armenians were given approval to teach Armenianism and not be persecuted. Yet it already had been established. So we're not going to get into Armenianism. I'm not, not trying to get you into theology. I'm just trying to, to get you back to, okay. So where is the Dutch Reformed today? They, they tend to be very Reformed. Uh, most of them have lost the Dutch term. And so the Reformed Church grew out of that mm-hmm. position and they tend to be quite uh, Calvinist in their, in their approach. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty much uh, accepted. You, you don't ever become much of anything in the church if you're not certified. And that's what happened is that Arminius was actually asked to teach at a university and so they had to examine his doctrine because they would not release him to teach if he was not a avowed Calvinist. And they agreed his position wasn't wrong, so they brought him in. And then a number of other people complained. They actually felt his private beliefs were different than his public beliefs. And so, how does that, how do we get from the Bible to something else. See, we start looking at a different authority. Instead of the authority of the word, as we said last week, there's an authority position, or there's an authority of the mind, or there's an authority of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Expertise. If you've got enough training and enough letters behind your name, if you're the expert in something, the problem is you, you can get letters behind your name, but you're only as expert as whatever you were studying. If you're studying philosophy rather than the Bible, even though you have a doctorate in biblical studies, doesn't mean that you're an expert in the Bible. And then there's the uh, authority of consensus. If everyone believes this, it must be right. How dare you swim upstream against the flow? And that's really what what, uh, Martin Luther said when he said, here I stand. The authority of the word, faith alone, Christ alone, the word alone. Nothing else. He was one of the few guys that didn't didn't get killed. Probably prone to that too. I think um, certain churches have gained a lot of people, become very popular. Other churches look to that growth, take on their thinking without taking on, without analysing it <clears throat> in terms of their biblical position, and. Um, a church that grew out of Australia it's become very popular and I know I've sat in a lot of sessions where they talked about church growth and how things should go and the whole approach to church how do you do church became more popular than reading 
Or asking God how this was meant to happen. What does the Bible actually say? Mm. Yeah? Mm. Yeah, it's, uh, it's sad, but it's, it's quite common. Mm. Well, we follow that rather than... Yeah. They're not insincere, but it's not a biblical foundation. Yeah. It's um, consensus. This but, is looking good, this is popular, and it seems successful, let's get on board. Exactly. There was a, a guy in the States, and uh, he used an interesting little phrase, but it became very popular, even with amongst Pentecostals, but he said he was a charismatic with a seatbelt. <laughs> now, that sounds wonderful, but what does it actually mean? It actually means, I believe in the Holy Spirit as long as he doesn't really do anything. And so the churches that followed that belief often would have a time. I know one church that was a Pentecostal church at one point, Spirit-filled, but pretty soon the uh, expressions of the Spirit were limited to Wednesday their Wednesday service, and it was between the worship and breaking to go to class, there was a place that the Holy Spirit could move. So we're charismatic with a seatbelt. So as long as the Holy Spirit fits within our parameters, we're okay. And our parameters are this 15 minutes each week. I mean, we just laugh. But they were sincere. Again, the goal was, it was consensus, but it was also church growth because there seemed to be, if you don't, if you don't have these spirit demonstrations, then people aren't offended. Who gets offended when there's a moving of the spirit? My experience is, is that unsaved people never do. The people who get offended are religious people. You know, people who say, but you know, I'm a cessationist and I'm offended that you're, you believe this because obviously speaking in tongues is of the devil. Mm -hmm. You know, so how can you let that happen? And so uh, obviously I'm offended at this. And so then we say, well, we won't let that happen because we don't want to offend people. Mm -hmm. you know, we're not worried about offending God. <laughs> okay. Any questions before we move on to... Bedtime? <laughs> No. Nope. <laughs> well, we're gonna we're gonna radically shift gears over the next couple of weeks, and here's what we're gonna do. I'm gonna give you one of three things. So, in in other words, there's gonna be three groups, and you're gonna take a look at what does the Bible say about this question or subject as a group, and then you're gonna present to us. Tonight? No, no. Over the next couple of weeks. And so your options are can you lose your salvation? Your second option is what about the rapture? Okay. First one, can you lose your salvation? What about the rapture? It's, it's hard for me to ask a question without giving away the, the answer I believe 
biblically, so I'm trying to make it pretty generic. What does the Bible say? Okay, everything is the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. So what does the Bible say about this? And the third one is, what does the Bible say about end times? Now again, we're talking the Bible, the whole Bible, nothing but the Bible, which is very, very difficult to do. As we talked about, we all have filters. When you talk about the end times, some of us have been uh, influenced by dispensationalism. John Darby and his dispensationalism, and we don't even realize we have. And so you might have to take a look and say, okay, what is that? If you have a study Bible, my, uh, the Bible I use, Spirit-Filled Life Study Bible, actually has a whole thing on Revelation about dis dispensationalism. Dispensational view. Why in the world are they putting that in the Bible? It's because we can't actually read the Bible ourselves. No. Uh, Can you lose your salvation? Begs the question, what is salvation? And what does it mean to lose it? And are there scriptures that say anything like that? What about the rapture? Is the rapture in the Bible? What does the Bible say about it? And in time. So take a moment right now. And think which one you'd like to do.